Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. Dr. Jeffress is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. You may or may not know the name of Hetty Green. She had a nickname during her lifetime. She was known as the Witch of Wall Street. She was the richest woman in America during the time she lived. In fact, when she died, she left an estate in 1916 of $100 million, which would be about $3 billion today. She had another nickname, America's Greatest Miser. That's a nice way of saying she was cheap. Now, this is a point that you yell back to me, how cheap was she? She was so cheap that she ate her oatmeal cold every morning because she didn't want to pay to heat the water. Now, that's cheap. She was so cheap that when her son developed an infection in his leg, she spent so much time looking for a free clinic to treat him that he developed gangrene and had to have his leg amputated. Now, that is cheap. I could tell you other stories. American history is replete with stories about wealthy people who lived like misers. But you know a greater tragedy than that? There are many Christians today who have inherited endless spiritual wealth because of their relationship to Jesus Christ. They don't realize it, and they live like spiritual paupers. And that was a problem that the Apostle Paul was concerned about. In fact, so concerned that he wrote a letter about it a letter to the Christians at Ephesus that we call Ephesians. And today, we're going to begin this study that I'm calling Holy Living in an Unholy World. We're going to discover how we are to live in light of the great wealth that has been deposited into our spiritual bank account because of our relationship with Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, some people may wonder, in fact, a few have asked me, why are we choosing to study Ephesians right now at this time in our church? Well, the simple answer is because we haven't studied it before, but there's a better answer to that. I think there are two reasons the book of Ephesians is especially relevant to our church at this time. First of all, it's a reminder of our sufficiency in Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. You know, we're living in a world that is infected with a desire for more. Everybody's looking for more, more money, more pleasure, more recognition. And that insatiable desire for more spills over into our spiritual life. I hear Christians say, I'm tired of the same old, same old. I want something new. And so they go looking for new experiences in their Christian faith new doctrines, new revelation that will put some excitement in their Christian faith. And yet, the book of Ephesians reminds us that if we are in Christ, a phrase Paul uses regularly, if we are in Christ, God has already given us everything we need for a full and satisfying relationship with God. 
Secondly, the book of of Ephesians is a reminder of the centrality of the church. The centrality of the church. Look at polls and you see them often. Church attendance is dropping precipitously in America today. And many of, much of that drop is due to Christians who feel like the church is no longer relevant. A lot of people say, you know, the idea of a church, that's an antiquated idea. It's quaint, but it's antiquated. The idea of people coming together to encourage one another and worship and hear the God. And so they've dropped out of the church and they're looking for some new organization. Something else they think is more relevant to get the gospel out. And they get excited about this ministry here, or this ministry here, or this ministry here, and they forget the church. Ladies and gentlemen, there are a lot of good organizations out there, a lot of good Christian organizations. But the church is the only organization in the world that was designed by God. Every other institution, no matter how good, is a man-made institution and is destined ultimately to fail. But the church of Jesus Christ was God's idea. God chose to invest his ministry and even his own reputation with the local church. I know some people say, oh, well, when you're talking about the church, the church in the Bible means all Christians everywhere. Sometimes that's true, the universal church. But out of 110 uses of the Greek word ekklesia, church in the Bible, 95 of those times refers to the local church. The local church is God's plan for accomplishing His mission. In the last benediction of Ephesians chapter 3, remember what verses 20 and 21 say? Now to Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be all the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations forever and ever. Amen. God wants to be glorified in the world. How is He glorified? Well, He's glorified through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the ultimate expression of God, but guess what? Jesus isn't here any longer. Jesus has left the building. He's in heaven right now. The world can't see the invisible Christ, but what they do see is the body of Christ, which is the church. And what the world ends up thinking about Jesus is largely determined by what they think about the church. And that's why it's so important, Paul says in the book of Ephesians, that we be unified as a church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but that we be committed to operating the church the way God says. And we're going to talk about that in Ephesians chapter 4. It's a reminder of the centrality of the church. Now, today, for the few minutes we have, I want to do three things. First of all, we're going to look at an overview of the book of Ephesians, specifically the background of this book, which is key to understanding what it's all about and what it means to us. Secondly, we're going to briefly survey the book. I call it preview of coming attractions, just some of the things we're going to discover in the book of Ephesians. And then finally, in a few minutes, I want to close with two practical applications from the book of Ephesians. First of all, let's look at an overview of the book. In a couple of hours, I'm going to get on a plane and go to New York City for some interviews over the next couple of days. And uh, Amy's not worried about my going by myself to New York because she knows I know my way very well around the city. And one reason I'm so comfortable navigating through New York City is something that happened to me when I was seven. 
When I made my first trip to New York, my parents took me there when I was seven, and one of the first things we did was to go on top of the Empire State Building, tallest building in the world at that time. And there were these little telescopes you put a nickel in, and you could look around and see things. And I remember my dad pointing out to me the city. He said, now, we're going to look south, first of all. That's Battery Park, and further out, the Statue of Liberty. Then we turned the telescope around looking north, and he said, now, that's Central Park and the Bronx. Then we looked east, and he said, that's the East River and the Brooklyn Bridge. And then we look west to the Hudson River and New Jersey. And getting that in my mind early on helped me navigate the streets and avenues much later in life. And today, I have no trouble because I remember that simple overview of the city my dad gave me. Now, it's the same way with studying a book of the Bible. We need to get an overview of a book before we try to navigate the various chapters and verses of the book. And so, what do we need to know about the book of Ephesians? First of all, look at the author who wrote it. In today's culture, when you write a letter, you sign your name at the end of the letter. But in the Greek culture, you put it up front so people would know who this letter was coming from. Well, Paul identifies himself in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We talked about Paul in our study of Acts. Remember, Paul was a Jew. He called himself the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He studied under the respected rabbi Gamaliel. Uh, he kept all of the laws. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was sincere about his faith, but he was sincerely wrong. The fact is, he felt like as a good Jew, it was his duty to stamp out this new heresy known as Christianity, and he was zealous about it. He would imprison people. He would torture them. He would put them to death, all in an attempt to stop the Christian movement. Again, he thought he was following God. He wasn't some sadist who enjoyed doing that. He felt like he was doing the right thing. But remember when he was on his way to Damascus to imprison more Christians? He met the Jesus in person that he was persecuting. Jesus thundered from heaven and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And the greatest conversion that ever happened in history happened on that road to Damascus. And Paul was transformed from being a persecutor of the Christian faith to being the greatest defender of the Christian faith. He wrote about half of the New Testament. Today, you and I are Christians because of Paul. He was the first person to preach the gospel in Europe, in Philippi. We wouldn't be Christians today were it not for the witness and the ministry of the apostle Paul. I think it's interesting that he calls himself an apostle by the will of God. You know, Paul could have said, I'm an apostle because of the learning I've uh, received from Gamaliel, the teaching I've received. I'm an apostle because of my righteousness or my zealousness. No, he said, I am the greatest of all sinners in 1 Timothy 1. I am an apostle simply because God chose me by the will of God. Now, notice who he wrote this letter to, to whom he wrote this letter, the audience. It's found in verse 2, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Now, that word saints is a word hagios in Greek. It comes from the Hebrew word kadosh. It means to separate something for a special purpose. In the Bible, the New Testament, saints are not little plastic figurines that you put on your dashboard to keep you safe while you're driving. A saint wasn't somebody who was a super spiritual follower of Christ. 
A saint wasn't somebody who paid a lot of money to get ecclesiastical recognition. A saint is a term for anybody who is truly a Christian. If you are a Christian, you have been set apart for God for a special service. John Calvin said it this way, there is no believer who is not a saint, and there is no such thing as a saint who is not a believer. In the Bible, everybody who is truly a believer is a saint. Every one of you listening to this message has been set apart for God for a unique purpose. And then it says, who are at Ephesus, at Ephesus. Uh, the book of Acts, remember, records four missionary journeys. You thought it was three. It's actually four. Three were voluntary. One was involuntary when he was taken to Roman chains, but he still used it as a chance to preach the Gospels. But Paul first encountered the uh, Ephesians on his second missionary journey. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 18. This is on the second missionary journey. It's about 53 AD, 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. Paul first visited the city of Ephesus. He arrived there with two of his friends he had met in Corinth, a couple named uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Sometimes they're named Aquila and Priscilla, but they were a husband and wife team who were involved in ministry. And so they came from Corinth to Ephesus. And Paul only stayed there for a little while. Look at verses 19 to 21. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now this is what is interesting. Even though Paul's primary ministry was to Gentiles, people like us, he always ministered to the Jews. Any city he went in, the first thing he did was make a beeline to the synagogue to talk to the Jews. What did he talk to the Jews about? talk to him about Jesus, reasoning that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the uh, fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Now, why did he feel compelled to do that? When people tell you that Christians are intolerant because they believe Jews have to accept Christ to be uh, saved and to go to heaven when they die, just remind them of the apostle Paul. He was a Jew, and yet he knew that Jews apart from Christ, just like Baptists apart from Christ or Catholics apart from Christ, are lost and destined toward separation from God. Paul reasoned with Jews to introduce them to faith in Jesus Christ. Don't buy into this two covenants theology that everyone has to come to faith in Christ to go to heaven except the Jews. They've got a separate covenant. No, there are not two covenants. There's one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. And Paul understood that. He loved the Jewish people. He was a Jewish person, but he knew they had to come to faith in Christ. When they asked Paul to stay there for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you, Ephesians, again, if God wills. I love that about Paul. He was a man with a plan. He always had a plan for getting the gospel out. He knew where he wanted to go, but he always said, if God wills. He realized his plans were subject to the sovereign will of God. There's nothing wrong and everything right with making plans, but realize they are subject to God's sovereignty. Now, he went to Ephesus. He would come back on his third missionary journey. Let me just say a word about the city of Ephesus itself. It's modern-day Turkey, where it's located. It's western part of Asia Minor. It was a great city of commerce and uh, um, very prosperous. But there are two things Ephesus was known for. First of all, had a large amphitheater. 
open-air amphitheater with about 25,000 seats. Many of us have been there before. Much of that amphitheater remains. I've preached at that amphitheater before. Now, that's one thing to know about it, and you'll see how that plays in the story of Paul in just a moment. But the city's greatest claim to fame, secondly, was the temple to Artemis, or as the Romans called her, Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a temple that was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was a pagan temple. It was serviced by 200 temple prostitutes. And uh, Paul came back and, uh, uh, in the third missionary journey, and he ended up spending two years preaching the gospel. Now, I want you to notice what effect that had on the temple worship of uh, Diana. In Acts chapter 19, verse 20, it says, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. And about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. That's what Christianity was known as, the way. Jesus said, I am the way. So he's talking about Christianity. There was a disturbance. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, Diana, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. The big industry in Ephesus was making these little figurines, silver figurines of the uh, goddess Diana for people who would come to Ephesus. They would hold on to them and pray to them and so forth. So that was their livelihood. So Demetrius gathers them together with the workmen and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. He's hurting our bottom line. We're about to go bankrupt because of this man, Paul, preaching that Artemis is not real. Verse 27, not only is there a danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis is regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will be dethroned from her magnificence. And when the people heard this, they were filled with rage, and they began crying out, saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater. That's the amphitheater I was telling you about. And they dragged along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. They would have loved to have had Paul come in there too. Paul wanted to come, but his associates said, you'll get killed if you do, and God's got other things for you to do. So under protest, he stayed away, but they took his associates in there. And now notice what happened, verse 35. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of Ephesus is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and the image which fell down from heaven? So, since these are undeniable facts, keep calm and do nothing rash. This little thing called Christianity, it's going to burn out soon. We've got the great temple of Artemis. It will stand forever. I love to preach in front of the ruins of the temple of Artemis. They're there. I always read this passage. I said, look at the temple of Artemis today. Hardly anything left of it. Does anybody even know in today's world who Artemis is? 
You would be hard-pressed to find one person in the world who said, I am a follower of Diana. They're all gone. Nobody's meeting on Sunday mornings around the world to worship Diana. It's gone. You can't find a follower of Diana after 2,000 years, but there are hundreds of millions of followers of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 2,000 years later. The church is stronger today than it's ever been in history. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was Paul's experience in Ephesus. Now, let me just say a word about this uh, uh, epistle to the church at Ephesus. Paul left there after two years. He ended up in Jerusalem where he was arrested, and he was taken to Rome for his trial, and he was imprisoned in Rome. Now, there are two imprisonments of Paul, I believe. The first imprisonment was in an apartment. He had rented quarters that he paid for. He was under house arrest, so to speak. It was from there that he was able to write some of the pastoral epistles like Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and um, Philippians. And, uh, but even though he was under house arrest, he was chained to a different Roman guard every eight hours. And these guards were special guards. They were members of the Praetorium, a special unit that guarded Caesar. And remember, just think about it. Paul was chained to a different guard every eight hours hours. What do you think they talked about? I guarantee you they didn't talk about the weather. They didn't talk about the stock market. They didn't talk about the outcome of the latest chariot races. Paul used that opportunity with a captive audience to share the gospel. And that's why he said in his letter to the Philippians, I want you to know, brethren, that my imprisonment has turned out for the advancement of the gospel. For even those of Caesar's household are hearing the gospel. That is, the gospel was taken from the Praetorium Guards to even members of Caesar's own household, all because of Paul's imprisonment. While he was there, he wrote these letters. We called them the prison epistles. Sometimes he wrote with his own hand. Sometimes he dictated to an amanuensis, a secretary. But he wrote those epistles, and he was visited by people. Uh, Epaphroditus came from Philippi, and Paul sent back the letter to the Philippians to him, with him. Another runaway slave named Onesimus met Paul in Rome, was converted, and Paul sent a letter and told him to go back to his owner, Philemon. And Paul had a word to Philemon about how he was to relate to Onesimus. And then there was a man named Tychicus. Sounds like I've got a stutter, doesn't it? Tychicus. He was a leader from Colossae, and Paul sent back with him the letter to the Colossians and the letters to the church at Ephesus as well. Now, let me just say a word, an outline of the book, the way it's laid out, the book of Ephesians. You know, some books are almost all doctrine with some application. That's true of Romans. Romans has 11 chapters of doctrine, and then starting in chapter 12, five chapters of practical application. Some books of the Bible are totally application with no doctrine. That's true of the book of Proverbs. Uh, the book of Proverbs is great for how to live life in this life, but you'll never find anything about it in it about how to get to heaven when you die. It's all about life in this world. 
But what I love about Ephesians is there is a perfect balance between doctrine and application. It's laid out perfectly. The first three chapters have to do with doctrine. The second three chapters have to do with application. I just finished reading the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great British pastors of all time. He said something that I could resonate with. He said, I spend half my time telling my people why they need to study doctrine. And I spend the other half of my time telling them why doctrine's not enough. The fact is you need both doctrine and application. Remember what I said at the luncheon last Sunday, God did not give us the Bible to make us smarter sinners. That wasn't the purpose of the Bible. It wasn't to increase our level of knowledge, but our level of obedience. I know there are many pastors, many small group leaders, Sunday school teachers who watch Pathway to Victory. Let me just say a word to you as well as to our own church here. If you're in a position of teaching God's Word, remember, content without application is spiritual abortion. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you teach a great doctrine of the faith or you teach a great passage from Scripture and never answer the so what question, you've missed the point. As teachers, we have to help people make that application. In light of this great doctrinal truth we've learned today, what difference should this passage make in the way we live in our commitment and fellowship of God? If you as a pastor or teacher don't apply the truth that you've just taught, you've stopped the teaching prematurely. You haven't allowed it to go full term to produce the spiritual life it needs to in your leaders, in your listeners. And that's why it's important that we have a balance between doctrine and application. You see that with Paul. In chapters 1 through 3, he talks about the great doctrines of the faith. In 4 through 6, it's about duty. Or another way of looking at it, chapters 1 to 3, our wealth in Christ. Chapters 4 to 6, our walk with Christ. The first half of the book is about belief. The second half of the book is about behavior. The first half of the book deals with precepts. The second half of the book with practice. In Ephesians 1, 3, Ephesians 1, 3, you've got the key verse for the first three chapters. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. But then the great pivot takes place in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called." That's an outline of the book of Ephesians. Let me just briefly say a word about the survey of the book, some of the things we're going to look at. Beginning next week, we're going to start with chapter 3, and the next two weeks go to chapter 14. These are great doctrinal truths about predestination, election, God choosing us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who because of His love has predestined us according to the kind intention of his will. People are saying right now, Pastor, do you believe in predestination? Are you one of those? Of course I believe in predestination. You can't believe the Bible and not believe in predestination. It's right there in chapter 1. God predestined us. He elected us. He chose us. Well, what about free will? What about belief? The Bible also talks about that as well. 
And next week, we're going to begin looking at the subject of predestination. I titled the message, The Mystery and the Blessing of Predestination. It's a mystery, no doubt about it, but it's also a blessing to every one of us. God has chosen us, and that has great implications. But nobody who is chosen can be saved apart from personal faith in Christ. That's what you see in Ephesians chapter 2. One of his blessings is grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. There has to be a personal exercise of faith. We're not saved by faith. We're saved by God's grace, but we receive it through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we'll talk about the relationship between faith, works, and grace in Ephesians 2. And then Ephesians 3, the emphasis is on the unity of believers in Jesus Christ. We are unified in the body of Christ. And then chapter 4 As we get into application, Paul is going to talk about spiritual gifts. He's going to talk about the purpose of the church is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. And then chapters 5 and 6 are about relationships, how our faith ought to impact our most important relationships. And then beginning in Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 10, Paul gives us a word about spiritual warfare. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, get this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Our death struggle we're involved in is not with our mate. It's not with our children. It's not with our employer. Our ultimate enemy is Satan himself. And he has a scheme, a plan to take us down, to destroy us. But that plan will not succeed. You know, I look at what is happening this weekend with Israel. This is ultimately not a human struggle. It is a spiritual struggle against the forces of darkness. You see, God said, I'm going to create a people, the Jewish people, and they're going to be an object lesson, a human object lesson of divine truth. It's through Israel that I'm going to display my power. It is through Israel I'm going to display my loving kindness. It's through Israel that I'm going to display my sovereignty, and I'm going to make this promise because they are my people. They will endure forever. Do you realize Israel is the only nation in the world that has the promise of endurance? God hadn't given that promise to the United States. We are not going to endure forever. Hate to tell some of you that, but you need to know it. We are going to fall at some point. Doesn't mean we become lackadaisical. Doesn't mean we don't push back, but America is going to fall. Only Israel, believing Israel, has the promise of endurance. And Satan says, well, let's just see about that. The reason Satan has his sights set on Israel is if he can destroy Israel, he can prove that God's incapable of keeping his promises. So from the very beginning, Satan has done everything he can to destroy and annihilate Israel. He's done it through human leaders like Pharaoh, like Antiochus Epiphanes, like Herod, like ultimately the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the world leader who will unleash the greatest persecution Israel has never known. 
But the Antichrist will not succeed because Jesus Christ is going to return. And Jesus Christ will have the final say in Israel. Believing Israel will come to fulfill and receive the promises God has for her. But right now, what we're witnessing in Israel is a spiritual evil. It is Satan himself who is empowering Hamas and the Iranian rulers to try to wipe Israel from the land, but they will not succeed in their effort. That's the promise of God. We face the same kind of struggle in our life as well. Now, what are the practical principles that emerge from the introduction to the book of Ephesians? I want to leave you with two quick truths. And this is the application part, and I hope you find it to be encouraging. Number one, every Christian lives in the world. Every Christian lives in the world. This letter is not addressed to the Christians who are in heaven. It's to the Christians who are in Ephesus. Paul could be saying today to the Christians who live in Dallas, we live in the world, not in heaven yet, which means we shouldn't be surprised when problems come into our life. In January of 2002, our pastor of 50 years, Dr. Criswell, went to heaven. Many of you were here for his memorial service in the historic sanctuary. I was pastoring in Wichita Falls at the time, but I was able to be a part of that program and join Dr. Brunson and Dr. Hawkins and Dr. Patterson in speaking at Dr. Criswell's service. And I always remember something Dr. Patterson said in his remarks. He was president of the Criswell College at this particular time he was talking about, and he was upset about something that was going on, and he went in to see Dr. Criswell, and he said Dr. Criswell looked at him and said, lad, I can see that you're down. You're upset. What's wrong? And Paige said he decided to have a little pity party for himself right there in Dr. Griswold's office and told him all the horrible things that were going on. Dr. Griswold listened empathetically and said, Lad, remember this. As long as you live in this world, you're going to be in a storm of some kind. But if you are in the will of God, you're safe from the storm. What a wise word. We as Christians don't need to be surprised at the storms that are part and parcel of living in a sin-infected world. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. You're going to have pressure, problems, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Every Christian lives in the world, but every Christian also lives in Christ. I told you Paul loved that word, that phrase in Christ. He uses it 164 times in his letters. 27 of those times are in the book of Ephesians. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means this, if we are in Christ because of our relationship to him, we are as close to the heart of God as God's own Son, Jesus Christ, because we are in Christ. It means that God has the same attitude about us that he has about his own Son when he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God loves you just like he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means you are therefore safe from anything or anyone in the world. 
In his commentary on Ephesians, Dr. Criswell uses the illustration of being on an ocean liner out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You're surrounded by hundreds of thousands of square miles of water, but you don't have to worry about the sharks. You don't have to worry about drowning as long as you are in the ship because when you are in the ship, you are safe. So it is with our faith in Jesus Christ. I remember some time ago, a woman called me on the phone. She said, Pastor, I was saved when I was a little girl, but I've wandered away from God, and I really feel like I am demon-possessed right now, and that if I were to die right now, I would go to hell. So I said, I want to ask you two questions. Do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? She said, yes, I do. I said, if you were to stand before God and He would ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? I'd say, because I trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I said, if that's true, if you believe the Bible, and if you are in Christ, listen to what Jesus Himself said about you in John 10. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No man shall snatch out of my hands those whom the Father has given me. You are safe because you are in Christ. Isn't that a great truth? Yes, we have problems, but we are safe when we are in Christ. All the riches that Jesus Christ has will one day be our inheritance. We have some of that inheritance right now, but most of it is reserved in heaven for us and awaits us when we see Jesus one day. And that knowledge of who we are as Christians in Christ and what we will re become and receive one day ought to guide everything we do right now. When Victoria grew up in 19th century England, no one told her for a long while that she was destined to become the Queen of England. After all, what little girl could handle that kind of truth? But the day came when a teacher revealed to her her future, that she was going to be not only the Queen of England, but the ruler over the British Empire. You know how she responded as a little girl? Her words were, then I will be good. And from that point till the day she died, everything she did was filled with that knowledge of who she was and who she would become right one day. And that's what Paul is saying to us. The fact that we are in Christ and one day we're going to inherit everything that Jesus has that knowledge should control what we do, how we act today. Therefore, I urge you, Paul said, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That is the message of the book of Ephesians. Let's bow together. Are you in Christ? Do you know for sure that you've trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sins? If not, right now is a great time to make sure you are in Christ. All you have to do is confess your sins and trust in Jesus to be your Savior. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, Paul said. 
Maybe today's the day you're ready to do that. If so, I want to invite you wherever you are to pray this prayer in your heart to God, knowing that he's listening to you right now. Would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to take the punishment I deserve to take for my sins. And right now I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name I pray. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.